Financing a Sustainable Economy. Interview with Linda Zalina, episode 36. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Linda Zelina, the CEO of the International Sustainable Finance Center. Our discussion, as the name implies, is about sustainable finance, but from a very important perspective, which is about expanding the circle for policymaking, which also means expanding the role of stakeholders in creating solutions where finance assists sustainability priorities rather than simple profits. We discuss how assisting people in governments and companies expanding the perspective of stakeholders translates into better investment environments. This includes raising awareness of environmental, social, and governance ratings, that's ESGs, and the impact on investors within the EU. There is a clear connection between profits of companies and their ability to meet sustainability requirements both within the EU, as we've discussed before here on the podcast, but also from banks. There is now a clear connection between the ability of a company to make money, that is generate profits, and the necessity to align their sustainability practices. This episode is important because Linda highlights the interrelationship between policy, stability, predictability, and risks. Policy and political risks are emerging as high in the Central European region, It is becoming clear that the politicians are unable or unwilling to adapt to the emerging financial penalties that exist in the EU. In the EU, defining sustainability, the term sustainability, emerges as a clear accounting system. It's a topic for a future episode, but what we do explore, uh, we do identify that there's a lot of risks in companies and governments not being aware of the penalties. So now is the time to develop regional and national ways to enhance sustainable business practices with the assistance of governments. Governments, as we've highlighted in previous episodes, are essential to make sure that the sustainable transition is actually affordable for people. For me, the main takeaway in this episode was how the Central European region is actually representative of other developing regions. The push for more jobs and companies, the whole idea in the past was low wages or lower wages in comparison and also higher profits. This can no longer be done at the expense of the environment and at society. There's clear penalties in place from the EU if a low cost regime is pursued in the region. So it's now time to create opportunities for a broad range of stakeholders to find effective ways for businesses to do business in environmentally and socially sustainable ways. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. And now for this week's episode. We're honored to be hosting Linda Zalina the CEO of the International Sustainable Finance Center. She has experience with the circular economy and has now founded the ISFC, a think tank that is taking on a key, if not the key area that can unlock a whole new trajectory of implementing innovative ways for us to live and companies to prosper in a more sustainable economy. I want to have Linda on to discuss her work through the center that is just starting and why the focus is on the Central European region. Linda, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. Pleasure to be here. My, my first question uh, to you is, why Central Eastern Europe? You, you just gave away that, that uh, you're Latvian, uh, and I know you, you've 
been abroad in other countries as well, and we'll get into that. But but why why Central Eastern Europe to focus on? Well, the idea was to actually focus on where there was the need for something new, for something that um, actually tries and helps bridge a gap. Because what we noticed um, when we started looking at Central Eastern Europe was that while there were loads of conversations about sustainability, sustainable finance, transition, green energy in Western Europe or richer, more developed countries, there seemed to be quite a muted um, discussion in this region. And once we started digging deeper, we realized that there's not enough expertise and capacity in the region to properly tackle the issues, especially from the financial side, because it is very important uh, part of the discussion. How will you actually finance the transition to, let's say, climate neutrality by 2050 in the EU if an entire region is massively opposed to it and doesn't actually have the capacity or knowledge to properly do it? So we thought it's a unique opportunity. There's a big gap in the market. And by building a center that's independent, apolitical, has good governance, that maybe we can help somehow convene and plug this gap, not just by convening people, but also by creating localized solutions and building knowledge um, on the relevant topics so that people have the tools to fix these things themselves. You, you open up a lot of questions for me there. And my first instinct is to ask you, and I, I, I know from your experience and, and you as a person through, through your background, that you're aware of the issues and challenges in, in the region. And I think I would pose the same question to someone from Western Europe as well is why does Western Europe, or we'll just say Western Europe, and we'll include the UK in that, <laughs> whatever status the UK has. Um, but what is this area of good governance that's practiced in other regions that's lacking here? So what is the standard that um, that the region should aim at, or what can be acceptable in the region? What, what is this international standard of good governance? It's a great question, actually, because internally we have talked about governance so much. Um, also because when we were building the center, we tried to tell others what was good governance in the, in the civil society space. Um, but even in the private sector, it's actually a big topic that should be addressed. I think the major difference between Central Eastern Europe in many occasions is that good governance is not necessarily valued in itself. There is a bit of a disregard for it. It's an afterthought. Let's look at the returns. Let's look at the profitability. Let's look at the, the growth rates first and then think about governance a bit later. But that is not just reflected in companies and uh, different entities, how they're run, but also how society and how governance in the entire region works. We haven't necessarily developed mechanisms how to bring different stakeholders efficiently together and how to build that respect and build these solutions together. Um, usually it seems that this is also a bit of, a, of an issue I find sometimes, even in Western Europe, you get the like-minded people um, preaching to the converted, so to say, uh, getting together and talking about the issues and all agreeing. 
But that, of course, is not going to lead to necessary um, action or change unless you actually also engage with those who are opposed to the change or have different viewpoints. Mm -hmm. So I think that has actually led to a bit of an incapacitation in this region to efficiently start tackling the energy transition and everything else. So so, mm -hmm. uh, I just want to stop there. Good governance, and this is both a leading question and an inquisitive question, is about transparency. Um, and is this one of the areas you have re- you've uh, experienced or you've assessed is an area of resistance? Is greater transparency in the area of we'll, we'll just accept the term governance, but what about transparency? Yes, transparency remains a challenge uh, on many different levels. It's, I think, transparency combined with inclusiveness and one actually influences the other. Um, There's definitely a lack of transparency in the sense that, for example, how are you even creating certain policies? Let's take, for example, the recovery fund in um, in Czech Republic, right? For the sake of it, because we actually did work on that. Okay, because Poland and Hungary are not getting any money right now. Yeah, so Czech Republic is a great example. Uh-huh. Exactly. At least uh, they were one of the first ones to even create this recovery plan. You know, Woo-ha, we're doing really well. But then if you actually look at how the recovery plan was created, um, most of the relevant stakeholders weren't even consulted. They weren't involved. Um, some people in some departments wrote the plan to the best of their ability. Also, you know, you have these are human beings. They're people. They don't have unlimited resources. So sadly, they did as well as they could. And then, of course, got attacked about not being much more transparent, not going through a review process, not listening to the right stakeholders or not convening them. So I think that's a very interesting example. And we see that on Just Transition. I think that's improving a bit. There is a bit of an effort to push to convene and uh, maybe do a bit more about it. And I think that's not necessarily exclusively just um, a problem of this region. We've actually seen that in many other regions as well. For example, um, Austria is about to launch its Green Finance Alliance. And we actually found out that none of the civil society uh, or expert organizations were involved in actually devising this alliance or consulting on what this alliance should maybe focus on. So it's an ongoing issue um, where it's time consuming and people maybe don't um, think it through enough to figure out who to involve and why. We're talking about uh, as a first step, then I think you've identified is stakeholder involvement, broadening it. So rather than just people and, and exactly, it's not just, you know, civil servants sitting in their office writing these plans. It, it is, but in a sense, it's part of the system that they work within. So you're, you're okay. kind of part of your mission. Let me expand it here would be to uh, assist governments and uh, others, even in companies, to expand the stakeholders involved in, in policy assessments. Exactly. And also to expand the perspectives. Um, because, for example, when you look at company space here, um, companies are often very upset about the fact that their energy mix is often reliant on coal. Um, and they feel like uh, the governments or certain policymakers, decision makers, don't understand how it actually influences, for example, their ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance Criteria Rating, 
by these rating agencies, which is, again, something that, uh, for example, investors are increasingly trying to use because there's a big shift towards using more data to understand um, how how sustainable these investments are, whether they're aligned with the EU taxonomy. So often it's not just about transparency and inclusion, but it's also about better decisions so that you can future-proof the economy and actually maintain the competitiveness of business and also of the entire economic system um, of a country. And why, why, so why, are, why are businesses pushing and becoming aware of their energy input? Well, they're a bit worried about their financing. That's It's all about money. It's not about necessarily doing uh, good or, uh, as somebody said, I don't want to hug the trees. I actually want to make sure that we have enough um, uh, loans from banks and you know investment in our operations so that our financing of our operations doesn't become more expensive because that will eat into our return profile. So it's very practical considerations. Mm-hmm. And do you think uh, firms then in Western Europe are more aware of their uh, where their energy comes from than those in Eastern Europe uh, traditionally and even now in the present? I think that the understanding and realization is coming. It's not as it used to be a couple of years ago. People do understand and they are much more conscious. I think that the greatest difference here is that the governments in this region are not sending very clear signals. Um, So in Sweden, for example, we worked in Sweden a few years in my previous role. That was very clear. We know what the direction of travel is and that government at one point maybe will do something. Uh, Although actually it was a very interesting case because the industry pushed for the change more. So they actually pushed the government to maybe start thinking and doing more. But in a lot of countries, UK government, others are pretty much sending the right signals to the companies and investors, which really, really helps because people want to know uh, whether it's a good idea to park their money, let's say, in something green um, versus whether it's a bit of a risk if you put it into something that uh, is not as green. And I like how you put it. It's it's about the money for these companies and changing over, we could say, maybe towards more green energy, but because it is like the ETS, right? It's the, the cost. They have to begin to account for everything uh, that they produce and everything they consume. And so it's going to cost them real money. So these countries are in in the EU. What is the role of the EU in in maybe I'm trying to try this uh, bring it back to sustainable finance? What is the role of the EU to promote or, or indirectly increase the uptake of engagement with sustainable finance? Well, I think um, actually the EU has been absolutely instrumental in this space without its work on the taxonomy, without its work on uh, ETS or even the carbon uh, border adjustment mechanism and all these discussions, there wouldn't be quite as big, um, big a wake up call for companies and investors also in this region. It's been absolutely fundamental for sending the message. And uh, we recently actually wrote uh, a piece on ETS and the use of the proceeds. I think it's a very interesting case where people are really worried about the impact because sadly in let's say the so-called uh, post-Soviet space, for very understandable um, historical reasons, we're really worried about socioeconomics. We are worried about inequality, about affordability, about the so-called S, social issues. 
And a lot of the discussions end up being, for example, the Czech um, national banker um, would argue that, well, why are we not more worried about demographics and other financial risk? Why are we arbitrarily prioritizing climate? Because demographics might actually strike sooner and we understand it better. And it's a very valid point because why are we actually so focused on climate? Um, even though, to be fair to the EU, they're also developing the social taxonomy. And I think it's an interesting shift that we need to think about the E, so the environment and the societal side, the inequality side together. And that's something that needs to be a bit more streamlined and aligned because sadly, a lot of the environmental action might destroy the social side. So socioeconomics make things more expensive or then create a big backlash against it. That again will in effect in turn uh, undermine our progress on environment. Um, because for example, if you don't have enough spare income and your energy starts becoming more expensive, or let's say you can't really afford these products that are properly sustainable, <laughs> you might end up buying cheaper things from China or plastic because guess what? You don't have as much income to be picky. So that way you can actually destroy the um, intended impact. Linda, you're, you're speaking to the converted. I, I totally agree. And may, maybe you could expand on this backlash because this is what I really see in yeah. the region. And, you know, um, the, the income levels are quite, quite low uh, and the budget household budgets are very limited. We just know even on energy poverty, uh, which mm -hmm. can be measured, uh, the difficulty households have in paying for their energy. And if we think about in the future, the projections are in 20 years, 30 years, the cost of electricity or gas, it's going to be many fold higher. And what what is the impact and and what is the threat of a backlash? Uh, we could even talk socially or politically if if um, this transition doesn't remain affordable for for the average household. Well, I think the risk of a backlash is very real um, because we call it actually the risk of a new iron curtain in the region, but this time a green one. Because if you don't start investing in enough um, energy transition and all these kind of key infrastructure elements that create systemic change and ecosystem to benefit actually from um, from the entire greening of like, you know, the economy, finance, everything, because that's the direction that we seem to be going, um, then you really risk having all of your business and your economic systems uh, being pretty much unable to compete on an open market. And because these countries are often embedded in parts of the supply chain, and there is much more focus than ever on the supply chain now, people are trying to understand the hidden risks in the supply chain. For example, great carbon footprint, exactly as you mentioned, carbon tax may be hitting these suppliers and how that's going to have a ripple effect. Unless we figure out how we're going to position ourselves well and create added value from that, then you really risk pretty much waking up one day. And then as the PRI inevitable policy response argues, um, it's a very interesting uh, modeling exercise. And they argue like, you know, when is going to be the point where the policy response is going to be inevitable? But what it shows that the longer you delay, the more expensive it becomes. 
And in countries which already see that they don't have enough money, you know, we're not Sweden, we're not Norway, we're not this, that, and the other. Well, you are Czech Republic. You're really not that poor, for example. You, you actually have relatively decent buildup of wealth. And you just need to figure out how can you do more with the money that you have. Um, it's not an excuse, right? You could always have more money. Uh, yes. It's more about what you do with it. Yeah, because, I mean, in one sense, the region in the past com com was competitive because of the wages, because of the low energy costs. And now those things are essentially going away. But... And, and the low energy cost is definitely going away. It's being <laughs> the low energy cost is being regulated out of the market or taxed out of the market. So now these countries have to implement the same, or maybe we could just say a similar green energy system as Germany or France, yeah. which, which they can cite as costly. But when you bring up the Czech Republic or even we could look at other countries as well in the region, you know, what are some creative ways, or maybe I should, the wrong, the wrong word is creative. What are some ways, mm -hmm. because it, it takes kind of both ingenuity to know each country, uh, and how they do things, how the banking sector works, who owns energy companies, you know, the things that they can do on the ground. But when we call it sustainable finance, but in reality, it's just finance, right? So how do we shift the financial sector over? Because if we can do reduce the risk profiles, investing in cleaner technologies is actually affordable. So so for you as the head of this this group of this institute, the center, how, how are you proposing at least in some some ways or how do you hope to influence how the region develops and find ways to finance this energy transition in an affordable way i think that um one of the main things that we wanted to work on and what we do um focus on is actually how do you incentivize the private sector how do you incentivize um the use of wider range of different instruments to benefit from the fact that there's so many investors with so much money that are very interested in this region. They would love to invest more in green because also they are seeking the alignment with the taxonomy. They're, they're trying to hit their own targets. It's not for some sort of philanthropic reason. They just want to invest more in green. However, there is a big problem all across the world and especially in Europe, which has a lower risk profile as a geography. It does not seem to have enough of a big pipeline of in investable, bankable, good projects, green projects. So how we would like to tackle the issue is actually helping people to build the capacity and knowledge as to how do you build investable, bankable um, projects that you can attract financing. So you need to start developing a bit more the capital markets in the region. They still remain very small. You need to figure out how smaller projects, because these are sometimes very small countries, I mean, talking of my own, 2 million people mm. altogether, how do you actually bundle these projects up so that the ticket size for an investor is bigger? Because a lot of investors won't invest in anything below 500 million, let's say. So how do you actually figure these issues out? And how do you create these localized solutions? Because, for example, in some countries, district heating is a big problem. In other countries, it's, you know, how are you going to transition from coal. So it is quite individual. So the same solution won't apply everywhere. But we think that there's enough interesting opportunities and impact 
that you could report and how you structure these projects, how you report on them, um, could be done better. Because a lot of companies still don't report on carbon. They don't report on pretty much many different things, which then means that, for example, in Refinitiv's or MSCI's rating, they score worse. Not necessarily because they uh, do things worse. They just don't know what to disclose and how to actually uh, improve their performance so that they can be rated higher and potentially be able to borrow cheaper and so on and so forth. So there's a little bit of a lack of understanding of how banking might change, how all these uh, financial analysis and risk profiles will change. And of course, government is sometimes a bad offender with its distortion of the market with subsidies, as I'm sure you know (laughs) better than I do, that that is a big issue. Yeah, yeah, just hiding everything. I'm not going to name any countries that, that hide. I just use that general word, hide. Who, who, who's actually paying for the energy system, right? Especially when the price of electricity exactly. has increased, price of gas has increased, and none of that's been passed on to the rate payer. Um, my, what, what comes to mind when you describe that is these small markets. I mean, Hungary is only 10 million. Uh, Slovakia is also small. Um, <laughs> Latvia, 2 million. That's, that's smaller than the city of Budapest. Uh, how, how can, are there cross uh, border projects that can be developed that can help finance? Or is this only like a national solution that's available? Well, I mean, I believe in cross-border initiatives in any case. I think it's kind of sometimes silly to try and develop uh, things that are just completely per country and localized. And it's also very interesting to see some successful examples because it's not all that uh, <laughs> that dark and um, pessimistic. There are also really good projects, really interesting things happening cross-border. And the hope would be that if regions, for example, collaborate a bit more, even for use of EU funding, um, there is good money. Not everybody's very good at using it and applying it. So that's the public side um, to the money issue. And actually, we've seen some regions um, in Czech Republic doing a really good job collaborating with others who are much better at using the EU funds and figuring out how they're going to do it in collaboration and, you know, maybe build a bigger projects that then can be financed from the different types of funding. So it's very interesting to see. I think there's a lot of potential in this. But again, sadly, not everybody has the capacity. So this is why it's so important that um, there are more people talking about the solutions and trying to actually figure them out because people are sometimes a bit overwhelmed with the complexity and how to navigate it. And um, we just need more solutions being built rather than what I call mapping of the obstacles and problems, right? We need to kind of start shifting into the I think we kind of know what the problems are. Yeah. We need to now focus a bit more on the solutions. And and when it comes to the solutions, are you do you, do you see those solutions where, where 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 do those solutions begin? Do they begin in government uh I don't know, ministries? Do they begin in the banking sector? Uh, in companies uh, that consume lots of energy, where 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 are some of these solutions, or w- what would be like one of the first steps to to go in? I think uh, I usually say that it takes all sorts um, <laughs> to solve the issues. Of course, in an ideal world, you would have um, very decisive uh, action by governments that figure out the long-term strategy and then backcast in terms of, you know, KPIs and how they're going to do what they're going to do and then align all the policies um, 
so that it makes sense so that there's coherent effect. Um, I wouldn't say I'm that hopeful for that because of various reasons. It's hard to do. And um, yeah, there's also vested interest in a variety of obstacles. But I do think that actually some of the next steps is um, the private sector actually is very powerful um, in terms of employment, in terms of GDP, everything. So there's a lot more that uh, can be done by industry, a lot more that can be done by banks, Um in most of these countries, banks are just waking up to the agenda because their parent banks in Austria, France, and elsewhere are pushing them. So I think actually if locally these banks took a bit more ownership and actually started more actively working on it, that would be very good. Not just seeing it as nice to do and, you know, we kind of have to, but actually believing in the change because uh, money does have power. Um so, and also in terms of um, business and even civil society, we just need to um, become a bit more data-driven and a bit more analytical as well. I think that there needs to be more, as I mentioned before, more um, tailored solutions that are embedded in evidence. And that has been just growing over the maybe the last couple of years. Before that, we have actually lacked evidence-based policy. So we need to generate that evidence and generate the analysis so that people can make more informed, better decisions. Mm -hmm. And civil society, could you expand on what, what you mean by civil society? In some countries, it's not appreciated. <laughs> and why, why is civil society important for shaping a sustainability agenda? Well, it's interesting because civil society space in, uh, in Central Eastern Europe is a bit different from, um, from let's say, more uh, older democracies or places which are richer. So, of course, it has its own challenges. Um, so in terms of society, what I mean is also people like us actually coming back. We have a very international center. We have people from Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, and Czechia working for us. I'm a Latvian, that's myself. Um, but what we're trying to do is we're actually trying to build something from scratch so that it is independent, apolitical, transparent. So actually, I think that we need to professionalize uh, civil society and also expand um, their thinking and their initiatives and be a bit more connected to the needs and trying to show a third way or whatever, whichever way you want to call it. Because currently on finance, at least, often the discussion is dominated by certain powerful actors, right? You just need to be that balancing voice and also point out greenwashing. That is a really big issue. So, um, or impact washing, that's a new one. Impact um, washing. So I think we have, a, we have a big role to play. But again, it depends, right? Even within civil society, it's not just one coherent body. We have uh, different dissenting voices and it can be quite fun. I think people should disagree more. It actually uh, creates better discussions and better solutions. Yeah, and better solutions. First, first, I just want to clarify, you said us. That doesn't include me. I'm not part of civil society because then I would be under uh, other reporting requirements living in Hungary. And actually, I think I'm serious about yeah. that. It's, it's a joke, but it's not a joke. This, this role of civil society, um, you... you you mentioned, I don't want to say conflict, but this dialogue that needs to occur and then better solutions can come out of that. Why, why and how can better solutions come out of greater dialogue? It's a general question, but I think it's really important to go into. Well, I think it's mostly you then see the problem for 
from all sides and you actually consider it in a much more big picture thinking. So you hear the different perspectives and you spot the unintended or sometimes even intended bad consequences. Um, it's very interesting because I think not only in this region, we saw it in the Nordics as well. People often are a bit scared of controversy or conflict. And I don't think that necessarily conflict should be seen as a bad or threatening thing um, because that does spark new ideas. And well, then the more solid argument, the one that can argue and be based in evidence, hopefully can root out the solutions that maybe aren't based in evidence. Um, but it can't happen if all the voices don't act, actually engage. And that's why the Swedish model is so interesting because they do have these fora where all these actors meet and talk. And it also builds trust. I think it, we do have a really big problem of trust in these countries in, um, <laughs> in Central and Eastern Europe. And I'm talking from experience. It's big mistrust, big skepticism, big who's paying you to do what? Well, guess what? <laughs> it's I'm raising my own money uh, through a variety of consulting and so on and so forth. It's, again, technical expertise-led. So... In that sense, maybe we need to talk more to also understand each other better, to understand where each of these actors are coming from, because that will just um, improve also our capacity to understand why somebody's asking for what they're asking. It's not that they're just, you know, crazy or uh, they want all the money. They're actually facing some real challenges that they need to solve. And hopefully that also gives a bit more leeway to potential compromise. Because on some things, it's going to be an uncomfortable compromise for everyone, but it's for the long-term benefit. And people always say that, you know, they care about their children. Well, guess what? Maybe we need to have start thinking what's going to happen in the next 20, 30 years. Um, what, what kind of a situation economically, environmentally, and socially we're going to leave for our children? It should be a very big question. Yeah. And it goes back to your first point, the longer that people wait or companies wait to engage in, in building a much more sustainable economy or even a company, the, the, the higher it's going to cost, you know, companies could lose business. They could pay higher penalties if they're not implementing these changes. So it has real costs to society, to the economies, to the companies. So it's absolutely uh, of course, there's not a carbon tax. Well, actually, in the EU, there is, right? So, so, but but it's implemented in different ways. So, so this dirty energy system that we have, and even just our practices, manufacturing practices, if those are unsustainable, despite the greenwashing, it's going to cost money. It's. I don't want to go into the great uh, detail of, you know, accounting and how all this is, is done. It's really highly, highly complex. I know from speaking with experts at Schneider Electric here, here in Budapest, it's, it's mind numbing how the accounting is done, but, but it's highly complex in the countries and, you know, everyone has to assist in making this transition. And so one of my, my one, final, one of the final questions I have for you then is what it, and it kind of goes to what you just talked about is, you know, what is your hope the impact of the ISFC can have on the Central Eastern European region? Well, it's interesting you actually mentioned accounting. Um, I do think that even in that space, 
people are asleep at the wheel, that they don't realize the world around them is changing. And we want to wake them up to this. So there's at Harvard University, uh, George Serafame and some others are leading the work on impact weighted accounts. And we do genuinely think that impact will be the new risk, that essentially it's going to be the big paradigm change where investors and asset owners and variety of different actors will want to know what's the impact. How do you measure it? Prove that you don't actually have, you know, these externalities like health effects, carbon emissions, whatever is the bad polluting stuff that we had and we never had to cost it in. Now it's going to be a bit of a push to cost it in because I think if somebody actually figures out how to link it to inequality and socioeconomic inequality, right? Why am I as a taxpayer paying for ExxonMobil to have a massive, wonderful annual return for shareholders? And once the shareholders wake up, the society wakes up, then there is a more collective push. Um, The EU, sadly, and not just the EU, a lot of governments are also bad storytellers. So I think that what the ISFC wants to do is to tell a very simple story as to what is the direction of travel how to benefit from it, and what to practically do about it. And provide the training, because that's another problem, right? Um, People don't always know where to even look for resources. We've had requests from banks asking, what do I read? (laughs) Or, Or other people saying, well, where can I get a decent course to understand what ESG is, how to measure it or how to integrate it or how to report? So we want to bring people on board and help them understand what works for them because, of course, everybody is different. They have different priorities. Some people care more, more about climate. Others maybe a little bit more about social side. But we do need to start doing something about it because we don't want to be caught unawares and then have to be reactionary. So I think we need to learn how to be more proactive about it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, my final question, and I aim this for companies and people working in companies is, you know, how can they get involved with your organization and exactly learn what you just spoke about? And, you know, if they come to you asking even just for readings, uh, how, how do they get involved with your organization? I mean, it's very simple. We are online. We have a website. We have one big annual summit that last year, well, actually, I keep thinking it's last year. It was just this spring. That much has happened. Um, But we held the first CE Sustainable Finance Summit in May, where we had, I think, 16 panels, 84 speakers, real proper discussions. Some even ended up in arguments, which was fantastic. I thought it was great to watch. At least you didn't fall asleep. So what we want to do is people to proactively reach out. They can email us, but they can also attend events, sign up for trainings. We did um, green bonds training for cities and municipalities. Um, I think it was altogether four days. People learned how to structure, issue, certify, and take to the market a green bond. So very hands-on things. So we do a variety of different things. And we're always very open to collaborations, to working together, and also understanding what people need and then tailoring our output for that. So that's how we spend our first year to understand what are the needs, gaps, and needs map so that we don't start offering things that people don't genuinely feel the need for. Yeah. Wow, that's a massive conference. That must have been really exciting. I mean, really, right? That's slightly terrifying because um, we kept pushing off our launch event. And then from an idea of a launch event, it 
turned into, let's just do a conference, only three sessions every day, each session for a particular audience. But the biggest challenge was by the time we had the idea, we had five weeks from the idea to the execution. So it was all hands on deck, but um, we're glad that people found it useful. And we're hoping that next year in spring 2022, we'll actually have it in person so we can see people in 3D and uh, have some of these exciting discussions also in person, not just on a screen. No, green finance. Like, let's let's label that as an exciting conference to go to because it sounds boring or maybe we'll frame it like that right but actually it's really exciting uh we had we at ceu a couple years ago i had a conference on um nuclear energy Mm -hmm. and same thing people were yelling at each other people were really rude to each other it was amazing the students were stunned in silence to see the passion of these people discussing nuclear power and and the different perspectives and i can actually understand that finance and how to make these changes because people are really, I don't want to say rigid in it, but, but, you know, there, there's established practices yeah. and then there's, you know, new ways to do things. And so it, these positions could be pretty hard. And then when you bring the people to d- cut together to discuss this, it can result in really exciting discussions. So, okay, yeah, sign me up for the next, for the next one. <laughs> I, at least I'm going to come and watch because it's, it's, yeah, when people are arguing, it's a good discussion. That's all oh, I know. Definitely, definitely. And especially when uh, central bankers argue, who are very usually um, composed, I find it absolutely fascinating because it brings out such interesting points. Yeah. Okay, we're we're just gonna put this out on the the calendar for everyone in the in the region to to attend just just to watch the fireworks. So, okay, Linda, I want to thank you so much for for coming on to the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation, and always a pleasure to discuss the boring topic of finance. Oh no no no! I I think it's um, <laughs> yeah. I I used to think it was boring, and now I'm I'm becoming much more convinced it's how interesting it is actually. So thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.